It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by the Romanian Presidency of the EU Council. A plan for the highly digitised Europe that puts people first. Towards the best connectivity, data economy, advanced technologies like AI, while improving e-skills, cybersecurity, data protection, innovation, creativity, gender balance and ensuring that no one is left behind. Read the Council Conclusions Shaping EU Future Digital Policy at www.romania2019.eu Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. By the time you're listening to this, we may or may not know who's going to be holding the next round of EU top jobs. In the meantime, this week's feature interview is with David Miliband. He spoke to Politico's UK and Brexit editor, James Randerson. It's delicious timing, given the fact that the UK is getting a new prime minister and the EU is getting that new slate of leaders. Had history taken just a slightly different path, Miliband could have been a big player in each of those events. This week, he might have been working up to the final weeks of his term as EU chief diplomat or sitting around the EU summit table as a Prime Minister, or indeed gunning for a new EU top job himself, having been a successful Prime Minister. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. None of that actually happened. Miliband chose not to knife Gordon Brown as UK Prime Minister. Then he turned down the job of EU Chief Diplomat. And years later, after he left Britain to run an NGO, the International Rescue Committee, Britons voted to leave the EU. Listen in now to hear him dish the dirt on Boris Johnson. Also, why he thinks UK's Labour Brexit policy is a disaster. The time he met the Belgian who saved his grandmother and aunt from Nazi concentration camps. And his views on how we can help the 70 million people on the run from conflict or persecution. In the panel, we talk about the strong and weak points of recent efforts by European and American politicians to rebrand themselves and their parties. And then we move on to that easy listening topic, Middle East peace and development. Now it's time to hear from David Miliband. You're here in Brussels today talking at the European Development Days conference. Tell us a bit about what you'll be saying there. Global issues that transcend national borders, issues like migration, but also climate, also trade. Those issues, the humanitarian and conflict issues that 
I spend my time dealing with. Those issues are not being handled well, and that's why you've got more people fleeing conflict than ever before. We're meeting in the week of the World Refugee Day on Thursday, which is when the UN announced the new refugee and displacement figures. We know there are record numbers of people displaced by conflict and uh, disaster. So on the one hand, you've got rising global problems. On the other hand, you've got a systematic weakening of the multilateral system led from the US. That creates an enormous responsibility for the European Union, but also an opportunity. And my message to the European Development Days is that with the new commission coming in with a five-year vantage point, yes, there are big issues internally that Europe needs to address, but it's also got to recognise that it's the most advanced development of the multilateral system. And so Europe needs to be playing an international role on issues like climate, on issues like conflict, on issues like migration that really speak to the aims of the European Union, the values of the European Union, but also the assets and tools of the European Union, because it is the most advanced multilateral body in having this range of pretty hard tools at its disposal. And in a development context, we know that the sustainable development goals that were set by the UN five years ago, they're off track in fragile and conflict states. Those are places where more people are living in extreme poverty. And so I think that it's really important to have focus and to have clarity that without some outside intervention, and the EU is the body that I think has got the greatest opportunity to do this, then we're going to see not just the sustainable development goals missed, but this new divide opening up between the extreme poor in fragile and conflict states, already more than 40% of the world's extreme poor live in fragile and conflict states, and the rest. And given that you talk about this bad actors being more prevalent. I mean, were you heartened by the results of the European election? Well, I think there were elements of the European elections that were heartening. I think that the rise of the Greens, uh, in some ways the rise of progressive forces equally, one shouldn't become complacent that 20-25% of Europeans voted for nativist, nationalist politics, the politics of anger as opposed to the politics of answers. And so I think it's striking to me that the striking, but when you stop and think about it, maybe not surprising, the nationalist nativist politics from different European countries, it turns out they're divided amongst themselves. And so the 25% of European parliamentarians who come from the nativist nationalist strand of European opinion, they can't agree on anything. Well, that's also that's striking and in some ways natural and in some ways heartening. But I don't think that should make us complacent. And I think there's a real imperative that the four parties that represent, I don't like to say mainstream, but that represent the right to the left, have got to get their act together. And uh, we shouldn't be under any illusions that if they fail, then there are all sorts of bad actors ready to try and take advantage. One thing I want to ask you about, there have been some recent cases of NGOs in Italy, Greece, Malta being criminalised for rescuing migrants in, in the Mediterranean, being branded as you know, people smugglers. What should the EU be doing about Well, that? you should never be criminalised for saving a life. I mean, that's the ultimate inversion of European values or of human values, frankly, humane values. What is a real issue is the people profiting out of misery, which is the people smugglers. And it's not just a matter of tackling the small-scale ones. It's a matter of tackling some pretty big organised crime. And that is a serious issue. It's a serious issue in North Africa. It's a serious issue... In the Middle East, it's a serious issue closer to where I'm living at the moment. It's a serious issue in Central America, running up through Mexico into the US. 
your father and grandfather obviously came from Brussels and left, I think, before the German occupation, but some of your family remained here. And I think it was your aunt and grandmother who, at a time when, well, there was a call by the, the Nazi occupiers for all the Jews to go to the railway station, and they decided not to do that. And you know, as a result, were not taken away to the camps. And they instead went to a village south of Brussels and were taken in by a farmer called Monsieur Maurice. And you talked about meeting him subsequently and asking him why he presumably put himself in some personal danger to do this. And he replied, on doit, one must. And I just wondered, you know, do you have a reflection on why that feeling of you know, duty towards people in need in that kind of situation doesn't seem to be as strong and as powerful now, particularly in Europe. Well, thank you for telling that story in such a articulate and clear way. I mean, it's a, it is a remarkable story, both the foresight of my grandmother in saying, no, we've got to get out of here, and secondly, the bravery of Monsieur Maurice and his family in taking in first of all, my grandmother and my aunt, and then other members of my extended family. You're right that those who did follow the call to report to Brussels Railway Station were never seen again. I think that there's a couple of things. First of all, there's a lot of people who do feel one must, on doit, uh, and we shouldn't get ourselves into a situation of thinking that everyone's lost their humanity. A lot of people haven't. Secondly, the enemy is much less clear now, the enemy in 1940, 41, 42 was much clearer than it is uh, now. It's a much more complex set of circumstances between Syria, Libya, Afghanistan. It's a more diverse, complex in some ways, set of drivers of migration. And that complexity can be a contributor to the dehumanization of the people who are fleeing. But what I always say to people is, if you talk to any of the people who are running away from any of the places that I've mentioned, there's a human story there. I mean, I was in El Salvador in February, and I met a family who were fleeing gang-related violence at the time. And when you probed into it, it turned out that the son in the family, I think he was 10 or 11 years old, he'd been run over by someone in the street. They had then demanded that the person who'd run them over help support the hospital costs of the kid who'd been run over, the gang then came and threatened to kill the family. Those people are then on the run. Now, that's not the same situation as my parents faced in some ways, but it's not totally different either, which is that you're basically in a life-and-death situation. You're in fear of your lives. And I think part of my job as an NGO leader is to help rehumanize that 68.5 million people on the run from conflict or persecution, 28.5 million of the refugees, 40 million internally displaced, they're all people. And they're all people who had jobs or had lives anyway. And most of them would like to go back home, but they can't because they're in fear of their life. And I think that's the core of an appeal that we have to make, that if you don't tend to other people's problems, then they become your problems. Perhaps slightly linked, I want to move on and ask you a bit about Brexit. Now, you're obviously on the record as saying that we should have a second referendum and it would be much better for the UK not to Brexit, to remain. And I just want to put to you a, a sort of question about democracy. You know, there were, there were a lot of people who, in that referendum, were registering a protest vote, many of whom hadn't voted before, hadn't voted for years, felt left out by a society which is very divided between rich and poor, between London and the rest of the country and all of those things 
that we know about. And leaving aside whether it would be better for the UK mm-hmm. economy and whether it would be better for all of these inequalities for Britain to remain in the European Union, wouldn't it be absolutely catastrophic for many of those people sort of trust in the democratic process if people are allowed to make the argument that MPs have simply taken away mm-hmm. the option to remain and it's sort of been snatched away from them? And Because many of them say, look, we don't care about some of the consequences that people talk about. We know what we were voting for. We want to Brexit. Well, look, that's a serious point, and I uh, take it seriously. And you can make it, in a way, the question harder by saying, look, 65% of people in the constituency that you used to represent, South Shields, South voted Shields. for Brexit. Mm. And so I take the point seriously, and I don't dismiss it at all. And just as a small bit of evidence that I take it seriously... I didn't do what Nigel Farage promised he'd do and the day after the referendum start campaigning for a second referendum, which is what he'd promised he'd do if if he lost. I didn't do that. And when people talk about respecting the result, I think the truth is that the middle ground has been pulled away by the way in which Theresa May interpreted the, the referendum result. So people like me didn't jump to calling for a further referendum straight away. But here's my very direct answer to your perfectly... A legitimate question. It is that the Brexit that people are now being offered is so different to the Brexit that was promised at the time of the referendum that it would be undemocratic not to have a confirmatory ballot. It would be more dangerous for democratic legitimacy and stability not to have a second referendum because the truth is no one was promised a no-deal Brexit, which is now being offered as the purest and, in fact, only form of Brexit that is available now. Even someone like Michael Gove is being told that he wasn't a true Brexiteer, that the only true form of Brexit is a no-deal Brexit. And, frankly, every single person campaigning for Brexit said they were going to negotiate a great deal. No one said there wasn't going to be a deal. So my point is that since Brexit is so different from what was promised, it will actually leave more people feeling betrayed to go ahead with the Brexit that exists now than it will to say to people, look, you you voted on the principle in 2016. Now, better safe than sorry, vote on the practice. And if you vote to leave, fine, that's your decision. But you deserve the right to decide whether or not, given what you now know about the terms of Brexit, you want to go ahead with it. And I would say, how can it be undemocratic to ask the people. If you were saying to me, look, MPs are going to say they're going to revoke Brexit without going back to the people, then I can see your argument might be stronger. But in this circumstance, MPs are debating whether or not people should be given the chance to decide on whether, now that they know what Brexit is, given that it's so different from the Brexit that was promised, whether or not they want to go ahead. But you know what Nigel Farage will say if it goes the other way in a second referendum. He'll say, well, third time lucky, we'll we'll have another one. He's going to say that anyway. But then you're going to say, well, you're going to be blackmailed by Nigel Farage. I mean, the truth is, he only got the first referendum by blackmailing the Tory party. I spent three years as Foreign Secretary opposing a referendum on the grounds that it was the refuge of dictators and demagogues. And so it has proved. Now, it's very important, I think, not to fall for that blackmail, because actually, proceeding with Brexit on the basis that it's been negotiated so far is actually going to cause more sense of betrayal than actually giving people the chance to make their own decision. Okay, here's a a question about Labour Party electoral strategy, if you like. If Labour were... That's going very well, isn't it? (laughs) Well... Let me put it to you that it went reasonably well in the Peterborough 
by-election. Those who advocate... Uh, no, I mean, the Labour's Labour just got... We've just got 14% in a national election, mm. in the European elections, against a government which, by any standards, is the most dysfunctional mm. and useless government. That, uh, so, so should uh, Labour... It's only trying to do one thing, the current government, and it's failed to do it. It's not doing anything else for the good of the country. And <laughs> Labour's managed to rise to 14% of the vote. So should Labour become a kind of unequivocal Remain Well, party? it should become an unequivocal party of a people's vote. Because that is... And then, and then it should articulate the case for Remain. But then right. people would be in a position... I thought Tom Watson's speech yesterday was excellent. Do you think Alistair Campbell should have been thrown out? Of for course saying not. He I mean, it's absurd. I mean, he's, he's, he's sort of labour to his bones, labour to his uh, bone marrow. So it was <laughs> ab- sort of absurd uh, to expel him. I mean, never mind all the arguments about how how someone gets expelled as quickly as he was, given some of the outrageous things that people have done on the anti-Semitism front that hasn't led to them being expelled. No, I mean, it's completely absurd. And I, I think it's made the leadership look utterly foolish. And on, on anti-Semitism... Do you think the left has a blind spot on that issue that somehow there are some on the left, I don't want to generalise too much, but who don't see anti-Semitism somehow as racism? And, and well, that... so I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to traduce a whole group of people, but some people clearly do. Mm. And that is dismaying and appalling. Did you ever experience that? When I, you, you know what, I, I didn't actually. Right. And so I um, can honestly say as someone who's Jewish and... Uh, never um, felt that I was being looked at as someone... I always felt I was being looked at as someone who had... People took their views about me through whether or not they agree with my politics, not my religion. And so that's a devastating comment, really, really, that people are now feeling that. Do, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn and some of the people around him are capable of dealing with that issue? Well, they've shown themselves incapable of dealing with it so far, but I think it's right that the demand remains that they do deal with it. One last question, inevitably, on the Tory leadership race. Obviously, Boris Johnson is the front runner. Did you have any, um, or have you had any dealings with him in your current role when he was a foreign secretary? No, no. What, what I do think, you make of him being in charge of the uh, Brexit negotiations? Well, I think that's. Um, I mean, I think one should never underestimate his capacity to reinvent himself. And so, the truth is, we don't know which Boris Johnson is going to come to lead the country, and. That's a problem because someone who has taken on so many different positions and so many different personas obviously engenders a high degree of mistrust. And he, he it looks like he's about to become prime minister, which is extraordinary, really. But uh, one's got to hope as, uh, that he takes the job uh, with the seriousness that it requires, especially at the moment of political crisis. I mean, to state the obvious, it's not a joke. And uh, the, the country needs a prime minister who is able to lead the country with a degree of purpose, but also a degree of consistency. And I think that is really imperative. Thank you very much Thanks indeed very for much. your time. I yeah, really appreciate it. That was David Miliband, the head of the International Rescue Committee and former UK Foreign Secretary. Next up, the podcast panel. After this message. A message from the Romanian Presidency of the EU Council. Tomorrow's world will be a digital world. Based on Romania's vision of a borderless and transformative digital Europe, a new set of Council conclusions highlight the main priorities for the future of a highly digitised Europe beyond 2020.
In order to boost competitiveness across the union, as well as to ensure cohesion, it is essential to support innovation and encourage digital technologies. Ethical principles and values in AI must be respected. Europe's cybersecurity capacity should be strengthened, e-skills improved and the gigabit society advanced. Europe needs to increase the number of women in tech. Everyone must reap the benefits of digitization. No one can be left behind. Read more on www.rumania2019.eu. And now it's time to bring in the podcast panel. I'm looking at two fantastic people here on a Skype call from New York City. Hello, Alva Finn. Hello, Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hello from Brussels, from your own office. Exactly. There we go. I'm a giver. It has been a week of rebranding here in the US. We have learned it's not about making America great again. It's about keeping America great. We're having a CAG party for the next 18 months, apparently, according to Donald Trump. And over in Europe, we are not a bunch of far-right wingers. We are identity and democracy. And we're not liberals. We're Renew Europe. What do you two think about all of this rebranding? I am not a fan of the Renew rebrand. I have to say I'm sad to see the liberals go. I also think it probably indicates a move more to the centre, less left-leaning, and that is a pity to me as a leftist. I think identity and democracy is a bit smarter as a rebrand, although I didn't really think they would play the kind of identity politics card. That's very interesting. The ID card, that's interesting, isn't it? Do we call them ID? What do we even call them now? Yeah, well, I think that that's what they want us to call them, is Mm. it? Yeah? Well, yeah, I think it's a little bit cleverer than Renew. Just sounds awful to me. Mm. I wonder how much did they do any message testing on that and see whether people actually liked it. But the whole thing is that voters will never even really know what Renew is. It's really just about us here Mm. in the Brussels bubble who will care. Lena, is it that they couldn't use Renaissance or Renaissance just because that's what Macron used on his list and so now they've gone for this crappy English language version of what was actually a nice sounding name? Yeah, definitely. English uh, language versus French language and French uh, sophisticated way of putting things. But historically, political groups are, at the end of the day, always try to win the trust of the voters. So if they need to be more appealing, they will do it. And we've seen Madame Le Pen renamed her own party. And unfortunately, it was the wrong naming because it belonged to in the 40s to a fascist naming of a party. Also, it didn't work. It didn't work, precisely. But what's important is not about the brand itself, but the programs of the political parties are really reformed and renewed and uh, more tailored for the voters and for what people want them to do. If they both are combined together, I think it's a good thing, but it's just for posters and leaflets and commercials. I think it's really bad. Mm -hmm. And what about the other parties? Can we imagine them going through any of this process? I mean, the European People's Party is a bit odd in the first place. It's not like they're a alien party or an animal party that they could be. So, of course, they're a people's party. And I don't know, the socialists, maybe they're not socialists anymore. So maybe they should be something else as well. The thing I believe it's the ones that they are always in the question mark are the traditional big parties. And it took them a bit of time to rename themselves. Uh, we have seen that in France. Remember when we had Mr. Fellon and he changed the name of the party again with his campaign. It takes a bit of time for the traditional ones to readapt, but it's the new ones. They keep changing 
quite often, especially in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Alva, you're looking very skeptical there. What's on your mind? Yeah, I just wonder how much this really matters to voters. You know, I think most voters don't have a clue which of their national parties are in, which political families they're in here in Europe. I think the brands are very weak elsewhere, outside. I mean, maybe people have heard of the EPP, but then after that trickling down, I don't think anybody has really heard of, yeah, the old EFDD. You know, I just don't think it really matters. I think it is true that it's more about what the politics is behind it. I don't see the EPP changing any of its tacts. Mm. The only thing really they said different this time around right, was they gave more lip service to climate change. Socialists as well. I think that was the big change. I think Renew is really the newest. And I think it is because of the way that Macron is seen as a kind of leftist here, but he really isn't. And I think that's the biggest change for me. And I'm really interested to see how that shifts the balance of power in what was Alde and how it's going to affect their policies because Macron is becoming much more hardline on migration. That wasn't a characteristic of the old Alde. So it'll be interesting to see. I think in general, the socialists still have the same approach. Why do you think they're not socialists anymore, Ryan? Well, I think that you have a real split inside the party, and that's why they're called the socialists and the progressives, or the socialists and the democrats, but their Twitter handle is the progressives, so their branding is just all over the shop, they don't know what they are, but they're very divided on things like trade, they stretch from the more moderate, new labor, social democracy side of things through to the very traditional old socialist sort of parties, so I think that they kind of, basically they have two factions, but you know, a lot of parties have different factions. I think probably the people with the best branding are the Greens, because it's a single word that refers to their actual politics and is also their colour. So it's an integrated brand in a way that a lot of the other parties don't have an integrated identity these days. Mm. Yeah, but I think that has been the challenge for Greens, right, across the political spectrum in every single member state of the European Union and around the world is that they have always been seen as a kind of one-issue political party that's changing now because climate change permeates everything all areas of life all areas of trade all areas of business so i'm glad to see that coming forth now but i also wonder you know how they're going to change that idea around them and also you know i hear from people particularly in the current negotiations that they're really seen as naive and i think that some people have always thought of greens as being a bit naive and maybe taking positions that are quite hard line when they know for example that the socialists can push other things yeah. forward mm-hmm. but they can have the moral advantage of coming out against things so it will be really interesting to see where they position themselves now and are they going to be more pragmatic Lena, any thoughts there? I mean, on the naivety point, I think we're going to see that from smaller liberal governments now as well, having to reckon with that because they won't have their big defender in the UK inside the system if Brexit goes ahead. So they're going to have to be quite organised to get what they want because they can't just hide behind the UK to block what perhaps French and German interests are wanting inside the council. And you probably see that dynamic in the four-party governing coalition that will have to effectively emerge now that includes the Greens. 
Exactly. And with whom the Greens were aligning themselves, uh, which kind of deals and compromises they will make. I don't think they are naive. I think their campaign was an excellent campaign from all aspects of the political campaign this time. And I am really interested to see how much they will give up on many things that they were mentioned in their manifestos and during the campaign in order to stay in power. After all, not all coalitions stay during the coming five years and we will see uh, weird alliances taking place and unexpected things will happen and the Greens, I think, will be the surprise for the next term. And they'll all have to be careful what they sign up for because some people in each of the parties will refuse to go along with whatever the grand bargain is that gets struck. Now, maybe we switch to one other thing that you were following closely this week, Lena, and that is the Jordanian foreign minister was meeting with all of the other foreign ministers, and you were telling us all about something called the Menema workshop, which maybe is another thing that needs a bit of a rebrand, um, because that I was understanding to be the economic element of what the Trump administration is calling the deal of the century. That's a pretty strong brand, even if it's not tied to reality regarding what we can do about the Israel-Palestine conflict and all of its effects on neighboring countries in the Middle East. Do you want to give us a bit of a read on how that process unfolded this week in Brussels? Was it a meaningful discussion? It started actually, Ryan, when Mr. Kushner visited a couple of weeks ago and met with President Juncker and HRVP Madame Mogherini in order to share with them a little bit more on the deal of the century, as they call it. Apparently, now there will be a workshop where everyone is calling it a conference or an initiative, but it is only a workshop in Manama. Ah, so Manama is a place. Where is that? Manama is the capital of Bahrain. Oh, I should have um, known that. Bahrain is a country in the Gulf and it forms part of the uh, JCC, the Gulf Countries Council. And it's a great ally to the US, of course, and a very important commercial hub in the region. The workshop will take a place there at the invitation of the US government, yet without inviting neither the Palestinians, neither the Israelis. It is kind of a push, let's say, or a nudge, as many are calling it here in Brussels, in order to say, even if the political process is not moving forward between the Palestinians and the Israelis. There are lots of economic opportunities for the neighboring countries and for the Palestinians who are refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt, uh, and in maybe in the future as well, they will include Syria. And just to invite all the investors and all the big companies from all around the world to come and invest there. And in Jericho. This sounds a lot like what the EU does in the Balkans, or at least encouraging a Balkan single market in the absence of any progress when it comes to things like membership talks for the EU. So, you know, the EU could get behind this sort of initiative, couldn't it? Except that you have a conflict that has been going on for 64 years and there are civil rights for the Palestinians and you have the issue of Jerusalem that is not being put on the table. So uh, during this meeting here in Brussels last week, and the EU is taking a very strong stand on that, that we will help, we will take a part in an economic level. But first, we need to understand the political frame of the deal of the century that apparently now it is delayed to be announced until November. Mm, that does not sound like it's going to move forward, though. Alva, what, have you got any observations as an outsider on this? Yeah, I just think it's really strange that you wouldn't invite the two parties to the table. Things can't be decided without them. And I also think that 
for any deal to be struck, maybe the US had been an important negotiating partner in the past. But I think that the Trump administration has made a number of mistakes, including the movement of its embassy in Israel, which really inflamed feeling in Palestine. I just don't think they can be seen as an honest broker. They're so one-sided now, clearly pro-Israeli. And I I really wonder, you know, how do they see this economic investment in Palestine? Mm. That's really interesting. And then also, how will this play into the global movement to basically boycott Israel Mm. and produce from areas that are seen as occupied? Yeah, so I mean, there's just a much larger political environment at play that just seems to be completely ignored Mm -hmm. and then this whole thing about the right to return of Palestinians that seems to be off the table but you can't take that Mm -hmm. off the table without talking to Palestine Mm -hmm. and then also I wonder will the Egyptians will the Jordanians etc will they agree that there's now no right of return because that means that they're going to stay where they are and who is going to want to invest in Gaza when you can't really even get in or out of the country. <laughs> like It's kind of an open-air prison. I don't understand, as an economic investor, what you'd get out of that if you, there wasn't some other opening up or some other subsidy involved in that engagement. Absolutely. And this is what the EU and countries like Jordan and many other international agencies are saying. If the right of return of the refugees and the two-state solution and Jerusalem is a joint capital for both Israel and Palestine, it's off the table to go and start investing and working on the economic side. That's why, as the Minister Safadi, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Jordan said, this is only a workshop and we should not take it out of its context. So things will be presented. People might agree and people might might agree. But the U.S. administration seems to be extremely strong when it comes that this is part of the deal of the century. Well, to bring it all back to where we began, it seems like Eurovision wasn't the total rebranding exercise that perhaps Israel had hoped for, given the circles and the roundabouts that people are going to be taking on that topic for the months and years to come. Well, I think we need to wrap it up now, but it was lovely talking to you in this transatlantic edition of the podcast. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Alva. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Please take a minute to rate or review us. We'd love to improve and also spread the word to others who might enjoy this podcast. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. So my big thanks go to Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray for making this episode possible. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.